Our scripture today um, comes from the book of Ephesians, um, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And uh, that is found on page uh, 1817 on your Pew Bibles. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one whom he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us, in all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he put forth in Christ, to be put into effect when their times have reached their full fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first in hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Amen. What we have just read is the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. It is, get this, 202 words long in Greek. Your translation in the Pew Bible is actually inserted a few periods because, let's be real, it's really hard to follow a sentence that's 202 words long. But the entire passage from chapter 1, verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence in the original language. It's really hard to follow, but that's kind of the entire point. Paul begins it by saying that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And he's not just going to leave it there. Paul's goal is to absolutely overwhelm you with a description of God's blessing. Our Father God is surpassingly rich. And through Christ we have come to inherit every bit of his riches. And so now Paul writes a 202-word sentence describing all of the incredible blessings that we have received in Christ. It's hard to read out loud. Paul barely lets you get in a breath. Reading the sentence is like getting dropped in the middle of a huge wilderness. You have no idea where you're going or how to get home. But for a second, you begin to be filled with wonder at exactly what you're looking at, precisely because you don't understand it all. In general, we tend to stick to the kinds of stuff that we can understand at first glance. I know my schedule every day. I make a smoothie with the same ingredients every time. When I go to McDonald's, I always get the quarter pounder with cheese and use the app to get the discount. I go to Aldi because it's a small grocery store and it's impossible to get lost. I tend to watch a lot of the same TV shows that I've always watched because I know what's going to happen and that's comfortable. I don't want to try a new TV show because then I have to learn all new characters and stuff. And it's really easy to take that same attitude with scripture. Okay, we know that God loves us and he sent Jesus to save us and stuff. 
That's the placid message, and it's comfortable, and it's the kind of thing that you can come back to every Sunday. We can say that, really, that we really know that message, so it's nice and familiar. Boring, same old, same old has its issues, but also has its perks. But Paul wants to break us out of that comfortable knowledge, to step back and take a look at what we really think that we know. Because if we actually knew it, we would never get bored by it. The idea that God love us, loves us and gave himself up for us is an amazing, incredible thing. How can we possibly get bored of that? Paul says in chapter 3 of this book, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This all is a really important practice for us sometimes. When you live the Christian life long enough, you can get really used to the good news, and sometimes it just turns into old news. We are surrounded every day by just unimaginable glories that are somehow so easy to take for granted. Wouldn't it be great if every morning we could wake up and look at the sun rise and, and think, wow, God did it again. He caused this colossal ball of gas to peek its head over the horizon and create this colorful, colorful scene for just a few moments one more time. His grace and forbearance towards sinners to give them one more day to repent has held up again. And this world that he has created is one that he loves so much they cause the sun to rise one more time. So in this context, where we have this huge long sentence that's meant to feel too big to function, and is meant to leave us stranded in a huge wilderness to marvel and wonder at the glory of God for a minute, it almost feels wrong to pitch it apart and talk about each of the blessings that Paul describes for us. We have a really, real danger of losing the untamable forest of God's glorious love for the individual trees. Uh, but you know, I'm gonna explain it individually anyway, because that's what I do. Um, so we're gonna focus on three incredible benefits that we, focus, we receive through the love that God has for us. First, we receive from God an inheritance. Look at all the language in this passage about just how rich God really is. He's blessed us with, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He made known to us the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And we have obtained an inheritance. And in him are united all things, things in heaven and things on earth. One thing that we don't often talk about in church is that if God is our father, then we are his heirs. Everything that belongs to God, in some sense, also belongs to us. Just like in some sense, what belongs to a parent belongs to the child when the time comes. But actually, in the Bible, this is talked about a surprising amount. In Romans 8, it says it pretty explicitly. If we are children of God, then we are his heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. First Peter says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The New Testament mentions that being a Christian and being a child of God means you get an inheritance in Colossians and Galatians and Acts and all over the book of Ephesians. In other words, this was a big deal for the early Christians. Already, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He's equipped us with the very power of God's new creation and the resurrected Christ so we would be capable of living a new kind of life. God has put the reign of evil under his feet because he has total control over it. 
He triumphed over evil on the cross and conquered death itself through the resurrection. As God's children, we've already received an incredible gift for our own use today. God's blessings give us a purpose in spreading the kingdom of God, and it gives us the power to do it with the Holy Spirit in the church community. But inheritance also looks forward to a fuller time when the heir actually takes full possession of the inheritance. If you're an heir, you don't currently have control over what you're inheriting, but you're looking forward to a time when it's truly yours. In the Old Testament, the word inherit often had a really specific meaning. When all the different tribes of the Israelites were finally able to enter the Promised Land and end their wanderings in the desert, the Old Testament said that they inherited their land. For instance, it would say that Judah drove out the Canaanites, and so they inherited their land. The idea was that the land properly belonged to Judah because it was promised to them, but they had not yet taken possession of it until they came and lived there. In the same way, we have a promised inheritance and a promised land. God has promised that the entire earth will one day be ours, because God will create a new heaven and a new earth, especially for his people, the church. We have not yet taken possession of that new heaven and new earth, but it's an incredibly important promise. We have a place waiting for us where nobody goes hungry, where depression and anger are no more, and where injustice and violence no longer exist. And that entire new universe will be ours when God returns to this earth to set everything right. Our God and Father is rich, and everything that he has will one day be ours. And we will rule that new earth alongside God and do what we were always made to do. And just think about what this would have meant for the earliest Christians who, in most cases, literally owned nothing. So many early Christians were women or slaves who could not even be said to properly own themselves. And yet together, with us, they will gain possession of the whole new world. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, you might get tempted now and again to get jealous of other people for what they have. Oh man, that guy has a really nice house. She has everything she has, and she, she never needs to worry. I wish I could have what they have. It's good to remember, then, that you have an inheritance which is way better than the inheritance of the richest and most spoiled country club kid of all time. Your dad literally owns the entire world and everything in it, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You're going to inherit it all when he returns to the world. It's not worth being jealous of some piddly hundred-acre estate. Second, in Christ we receive God's good pleasure. God has purposed that we would be united to Christ since before the very foundation of the world. Now think about that. God knew that you would become a part of his people since before the world existed. In fact, he knew that he would become a human, and that he would suffer for the forgiveness of sins before the world was even created, and he did it anyway. God loved you before the atoms that make up the tiniest of your cells even made it onto the earth. You are incredibly precious to God, and you are worth every drop of sweat and blood that came from the brow of the crucified Christ. And all of this, according to the good pleasure and will of God. It was God's pleasure to make you, even though you would sin. And it was God's pleasure to do whatever it takes to make you a part of his people, even by sending his son. Now, this is something that is really hard for me to come to grips with. One of the things that happens really easily, easily in our culture is that you come to think of your value in terms of the things you produce or what you can do for other people. 
If I don't get stuff done, or if I make things harder on people, it's easy for me to think that I'm worth a lot less. What that often means is that I can think that God merely tolerates me. He loves me like an owner might love a dog that pees everywhere and never stops barking. Or like an annoying employee who gets everything wrong but's too expensive to replace him. But nobody could have ever done more for people than Christ did. And yet Christ gave up his own life for our sake. What that means is that our value can never come from the stuff we produce or the people we help. Because otherwise it wouldn't be worth it. No, my life has value because God loves me. And that never changes. In fact, God takes pleasure in me and takes pleasure in you. And that not just because of the things we do for him. He actually takes pleasure in the life we live and the things we do for him. He purposed to love us and give himself for us long before we could have ever done anything for him. And all of this was done to unite all things in Christ. And what an incredible thing that is. This world seems so divided and chaotic, especially this week. It seems so often that there's no ordering principle, that evil triumphs just as often as what's good. But instead, Paul says that since the very beginning of the world, the plan has been for everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth to find its fulfillment in Christ's sacrifice for the, on the cross and in his new kingdom. All of creation exists for the sake of Jesus Christ and for his people, because Christ won it with the incredible love that he showed us. So often we think that the world has no real purpose. It's just random atoms hitting each other and bouncing off. Volcanoes erupting and killing hundreds. Tsunamis that don't care that they're washing away humans. Wars where there don't seem to be any rules. But no, every atom of this universe belongs to God and to his Christ, and exists so that one day it can be put into subjection to him so that he could bring him glory. And if Christ is the highest good in the entire world, that means that the world exists for the good. Every evil thing is merely the last gasp of a dying order that will be washed away and will be brought under the command and judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we belong to him. And finally, we receive from God the promised Holy Spirit. The Old Testament, which it was often said that when a person was empowered to do God's mission, that the Spirit of God rested on him, or something like that. The same thing is true for us when we receive the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by God to go and to do his mission, to spread his kingdom throughout the world, and to redeem it in love and faithfulness. Where before God seemed absent in the world, maybe showing himself in his temple now and again, now we have God's full presence wherever we go. Where before our nature inclined us towards sin and to further destroying the world, now we have a new nature through the power of Christ's resurrection that leads us to begin to put the world back together again. And that new nature in the spirit is in fact the very beginning of the new heaven and new earth that God is creating. In fact, in verse 14 it says that the spirit is the first deposit of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That inheritance being the entire new world. Some translations call it a down payment instead of a deposit. And both of those translations are good. But think about that for a second. When you're making a down payment for a house or something, what you're doing is getting a certain amount of money as a promise. You're saying, there's more where that came from. And when you, when you, what you're giving in the down payment is just a part of what you're promising to give in the future. 
the point of a down payment is that what you're getting now is of the same nature as what you're promising to give. As a down payment on a house, you wouldn't give the bank a HUD as your promise to give them more money. You give them money as a promise to give them more money. Even if a HUD is a great thing and the person approving the loan really needs a HUD. Now I'm belaboring the point because it's important. The promised Holy Spirit is a down payment of our future inheritance of the new heavens and new earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit allows us to have a, a small experience of the heaven, new heavens and new earth right now. Just like when you put a down payment on a house, the bank gets to have a small experience of the total amount of money that they will have right now. God wouldn't give you the Holy Spirit as a down payment if it weren't a foretaste of the perfect new heavens and new earth any more than a bank would accept a HUD as a down payment on your house. What that means is that there's a new world coming where there's no evil or pain or suffering or war or violence or injustice anymore. Where people live together in real community, where nothing stands between them. A new world is coming which is so real that it makes the world we live in look completely fake. And if we have the promised Holy Spirit, we can actually experience some part of that right now. Our community at Drainsville can be a place that looks just a little bit like the redeemed people of God in the new creation. And when people come and see us, they can be invited into that community and experience that spirit ourselves, themselves. And we can say this community, even at our very best, is just the tiniest little down payment on the new world that's coming. As lost as we can be in God's love here, we can tell ourselves confidently and tell each other that there's more where that came from. Let's pray. Great God, give us an experience of your love so we can become lost in the incomprehensible riches of your glory. Help us here to live out our calling to give your people a small experience of the glory of your coming kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.